0: Welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. As I mentioned last episode, these three episodes, 139 to 141, are going to be part of our supplemental series, where we talk about some of the other characters associated with Adam Warlock and Thanos. So far, we have only been covering Death, but that's going to be changing soon. But before we add anyone else in, I wanted to go back over the episodes where we covered Death's early appearances because due to the time period those comics were from I didn't always have access to them so those death episodes were done out of chronological order. Now in order to make my brain happy we are going to be using these these three episodes to replay or reprint those episodes in proper order. Last episode we did the first three appearances, this time we're doing the next three. Enjoy! This time We are covering the fourth appearance of death in a Marvel, well, still timely at this time, comic, from Daring Mystery Comics No. 8, cover dated January 1942. The Thunderer was another of the many short-lived characters created during the Golden Age. His first appearance was in Daring Mystery Comics No. 7, April 1941. He next appeared in the issue we are covering today, and also, with a name change, in All Winners Comics number 6, Fall 1942. In real life, he is radio operator Jerry Carstairs, who was upset because he felt the United States was not doing enough about crime or Nazi saboteurs, decided to put on a costume and do something about it. His costume was designed with a microphone in it, which could amplify his voice, or even be loud enough to deafen people or damage buildings. After his two appearances in Daring Mystery in 1941, he shows up again in late 1942 in an issue of all Winner's comics. That time, though, he called himself the Black Avenger, but still had the same costume. Speaking of his costume, it is all blue, with the pants boots as one piece. Red belt, no gloves, and red from his wrists to just under his elbows. He has a blue hood attached to a red cape with blue on the edges. Under the hood, he has on a black full-face mask with a red eye design over his eyes and a red triangle where his nose is giving him a jack-o'-lantern look. I am also seeing images of him wearing the same costume, but with the red and blue parts reversed. He has actually had more appearances in later years than in the Golden Age. He had a brief cameo Marvel Premiere number 29, as well as Marvel's number 1, and Captain America number 442. In this century, he has shown up in Avengers Invaders number 10 and 12, Marvel's Project number 8, and just a few years ago in the Ant-Man Last Days one-shot. His creators were John Compton and Carl Burgos. Burgos is, of course, the creator of the original Human Torch, and Compton did a little writing for Timely, but mostly seems to be credited as an editor on Classic Comics. Classic Comics, by the way, is more recognized by the title it would turn into with issue 35, Classics Illustrated. However, neither of them are the creators for this story. This story was written by Irving Boris Wurstein. Worstein had a brief career in comics, but most of his career was spent writing over 50 books, most of them nonfiction ones for young adult readers. The artist is Ed Robbins. Robbins apparently worked for most of the Golden Age publishers, but is mostly known for being the artist on the Mike Hammer comic strip, based on the character created by Mickey Spillane. The Thunderer in Death Rides the Airwaves. Written by Irving Wurstein, artist Ed Robbins. The rest of the creator credits are unknown, except for cover art, Jack Kirby, and Joe Simon, and edited by Stan Lee. Cover dated January 1942, on sale date October 25th, 1941, with a cover price of 10 cents. You can find this reprinted in Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Daring Mystery Comics Volume 2, and digitally on Comixology and Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. Multiple people are ending up dead by mysterious circumstances after hearing the Morse code for D. First, Edward Wade, attorney, hears the noise on his radio and is then found electrocuted. Then, a well-known business executive after hearing the noise on a phone call. An examination finds he was killed by a poison needle attached to the earpiece. Our hero, Jerry Carstairs, is at his job at a federal communications listening post and is thinking about these D-related murders. That night, actress Mary Graham is performing on the radio And Jerry hears the D noise during the program. Changing into the Thunderer, he goes to the radio station and follows Mary home. Watching through her window, he sees her turn on her radio and then hears a shot. Smashing through the window, he leaps into the house. But it is too late. Mary is dead from a bullet fired from a gun hooked up to her radio. He sees a car parked outside drive away and decides to follow it. Jumping onto the back bumper... He can hear the men inside talking about getting paid for Mary's murder. However, they can see him in the rearview mirror and get out to take care of him. They fight, but the Thunderer takes them all out and forces them to take him to their boss. They take him to their headquarters, and he meets the boss, Gore, who resembles Quasimodo. The Thunderer goes to grab Gore, but falls down a trap door to a cell below. Gore orders his men to finish the Thunderer off, but when they go to do that, he knocks them all out and leaves them locked in the cell. He goes upstairs to find Gore sending another D message and monologuing to himself. Death, death, my partner. I shall wreak my vengeance on the world that has set me apart because of my misshapen body. The two fight, and during the fight, some of the electrical lines are ripped out and short circuit, causing a fire. Eventually, the Thunderer knocks Gore out, but he's able to carry him out of the building. By this point, the fire has grown too hot to rescue the other men. And while he has been rescued from the fire, Gore, either from his injuries caused by the fight or maybe smoke inhalation, dies as well. But not before confessing that his victims were picked at random. And his reason? His hatred for mankind. This was an interesting story, I thought. There are a few things that happen just for story convenience, but I can't call it bad. It has quite a few good points. I enjoyed the art. I liked Ed Robin's style he does a good job of making each character look distinct. He even gives the three flunkies more differences than just hair color. Gore does look misshapen, but not comically so. He's not so bizarrely drawn that I couldn't see someone being born this way, which I think adds a bit to his tragedy. Of course, up feel his tragedy up until he was committing mass murder. That's where my sympathy ends. Of course, our hero Jerry Carstairs has his own look, or at least a borrowed one, Unless I'm mistaken about my 1940s movie stars, I would say the role of Jerry could be played by Clark Gable wearing glasses. The storytelling is also good. With the exception of one page, Just the story flows from panel to panel without any confusion. There's also a nice panel on the second page, symbolically showing all the people, including Death, listening to Mary Graham's broadcast. As for the story, well, it mostly works. There are a few things that seem to happen just for random convenience... Like when Jerry hears the D sound and deduces that it was meant for Mary. Now, he was right. But nothing in the story before prepared us for that. As far as we had been told, it was just the people who were about to die who who heard the Morse code sound. If Mary had complained about hearing it, that would be one thing. But Jerry heard it. What made him think it was for Mary and not for anyone else listening? Or even himself? It's also pretty convenient that the car he sees driving outside is the one with the criminals in it. That was a nice stroke of luck for the Thunderer. Okay, appearances of death in this story. After all, that's why we're covering it. On the first page, we have an image of death using a telegraph machine, indicating how it's going to be used in this story. We also have the pretty cool panel on the second page that I mentioned before. It works like a montage, showing all the different people listening to their radios, and in the center is death listening on a pair of headphones. I like that image a lot. I'm going to try and get it up on the different social media sites I have for this show. Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook. So check it out if you get a chance, and let me know what you think.
1: In the 30th century, there are many dangers, among them hostile aliens, mad sorcerers, and guys in funny purple robes. But the worst of all of these would be continuity reboots. Having a problem telling which boy or girl or lad or lass is which? Which Karate Kid are you actually reading? Or what is the deal with all those Legionnaires in Superman's books right now? We can help you with that. So climb into the time bubble with Paul, Darren, Matt, and Scott every Monday for in-depth analysis of the Legion of Superheroes mythos, including retro reviews, current Legion comic chat, and more fun than you can shake a Martian ice cream cone at Legion of Substitute Podcasters, forged in the present by stories of the future. www.legionofsubstitutepodcasters.com
0: This episode will be one of our Resurrection Supplemental episodes, which I put out either when I'm getting behind and doing the regular episodes, or just don't have any other idea of what to do. In these supplemental episodes, we cover other characters who are important to the Thanos-Adam Warlock stories. Starting with the oldest of these characters, Death. And this time, we are covering the fifth appearance of Death in a Marvel, well, still timely, at the time, comic. From Mystic Comics number 8, cover dated March 1942. Now, before we start talking about the story, let's talk about who is the Black Marvel. The Black Marvel is Dan Lyons. Years before, his father James had his life saved by Mantu, who was the chief of one of the Blackfoot tribes. Dan went to meet up with Mantu to see if he could repay the debt to his father. He showed up at a point when Mantu was dying and holding a competition to determine his successor. And at that point, all the others who were trying had failed, so Dan was allowed to try. Because I guess why not? He had to outrun a deer, swim upstream faster than a salmon, and make four archery bullseyes while blindfolded. And he passed. He even caught arrows in midair that were fired at him, and the final test was to fight and kill a bear with just his hands. And he did that too. And instead of making him the chief, which was the point of the competition, they gave him the Black Marvel costume along with the responsibility to right wrongs and destroy those who would prey on the helpless. They also gave him a longbow, telling him to notch it every time he performed a good deed. Only when he had 100 notches would he be truly worthy of calling himself the Black Marvel. Just a note, because I have not read other Black Marvel stories. I don't know if that's something that was used just in the origin story, or scattered through other stories perhaps, but that does not appear in this issue at all, so forget that. But this whole thing is weird, right? I mean... It would make sense if one of the tribe had won, or at least won part of the contest, because I'd assume they would know this is a known possibility, so they would start training for it if they want to be the chief. But what the hell was this Dan Lyons doing with his life that made him able to do all that? I mean, since the competition was to be chief, not to get a costume, and they gave the costume, I wonder if that was them maybe talking to each other going, let's give this guy a costume and send him on his way, because... He's kind of nuts, and if he's going to go crazy, let's let him go nuts out there. It does, of course, have a bit of the white savior trope where he comes into the tribe and he's the bestest out of all of them and able to do all their stuff better than them. But at the very least, the tribe is smart enough to send him away. It's like, yeah, you, won. that's great. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> anyway, the Black Marvel first appeared in Mystic Comics number five, and he appeared in each issue until nine, <laughs> as well as having a story in all Winners Comics number one not a lot of appearances. He was created by artist Al Gabrielle and an unknown writer. Gabrielle is also known for co-creating the original Miss America and possibly The Wizard. Now, For such a minor character, the Black Marvel did pretty well for himself later on. In the 90s, he appeared in the five-part story Six Forgotten Warriors in the Spider-Man animated series, voiced by Paul Winfield. And later on in the comics, he would go on to appear in the Spider-Man spin-off series Slingers as our mentor, and he died at the end of the series. Alright, enough of the Black Marvel, let's talk about the creators on this story. Now, the writer is unknown, but the artist is George Klein. So early in the Golden Age, he worked for Timely on such titles as All Winners Comics, Captain America Comics, USA Comics, and Young Allies Comics, and of course Mystic Comics. He was drafted in 1943 and was honorably discharged in 1946 after serving as a private in the Army Infantry, and he went back to working as an artist in comics and magazines. He was a regular contributor to Wyoming Wildlife, and thanks to his work there and in a few other places, he gained some renown as a wildlife and landscape artist. He also went back to working for Timely, or Atlas at that point. In fact, he it's presumed that he was the uncredited inker for Jack Kirby on Fantastic Four number 1 and 2, so that's cool. He also did work for DC, and in the mid-50s was paired up as an inker for Kurt Swan on some of the various Superman titles. And although he died in 1969, Klein continued to work for both Marvel and DC throughout the 60s until his death. And his work appears in many of the significant books of the Silver Age, including the first appearance of the Fatal Five in Venture Comics, and the first appearance of the Vision in Avengers. Unfortunately, I was able to find out a lot less information on the inker, Howard James. All I could see was that he was an inker on stories in Mystic Comics 8, 9, and 10, All Winners Comics 4 and 5, USA Comics number 4, and Submariner Comics number 3, working on The Angel, The Wizard, and The Black Marvel mostly. I'm wondering if maybe this was a pen name for another artist. So if anyone out there has any information about Howard James or maybe who he really was, please let me know. From Mystic Comics number 8, The Black Marvel in the largest diamond in the world. Pencils by George Klein, inker Howard James, cover art Al Gabrielle, all of the creators are unknown, cover dated March 1942, on sale date December 28th, 1941, cover price 10 cents. Deep in the bowels of the earth, it lay. THE LARGEST DIAMOND IN THE WORLD Who could dare dream the curse of health was upon it, or that it was destined to lead the Black Marvel to a hideous adventure? Our story opens in the Chisholm Diamond Mine in South Africa. One of the miners working there uncovers what might be the biggest diamond in the whole world. He goes to take it out, but drops dead as soon as he touches it. A few of the others gather around to see what had happened, and when one of the others touch it, he dies too. Then, someone else appears in the mine. He introduces himself as Buka, a witch doctor. He tells the miners that Volcan, the Earth Core God, had placed the mine under a curse. This freaks out the miners and they all run out. Buka then goes out to speak to all the native workers and convinces them that it was taboo to work at the mine. The foreman tries to speak to them, but they refuse to go back to work. The owner then tries to talk to them, but they still refuse. With no one working, That night, the grounds are deserted except for a lone guard. A gangster and his three men drive up. They had heard about the giant diamond, and with no one there, decide to steal it. Knocking out the guard, they sneak into the mine. But as soon as one of them touches the diamond, the grim shadow of death comes up from behind, and he falls dead. The other mobsters are still determined to get the diamond, but then the Black Marvel appears. He makes short work of the gangsters, but is himself fell by a drug dart from a blowgun used by some tribesmen. He is carried out of the mine and brought to the Mari village, and the Mari are cannibals. After some pre-dinner ceremony, the Black Marvel is carried out and tossed into a big pot full of hot water. The heat apparently caused the drug to wear off, and he wakes up. He leaps out, beats up most of the village, and runs off, although he's not sure which way to run. A few of them catch up to him and attack him with a spear, but he takes them out as well, keeping the spear. Which is good for him, because then three lions attack! He's able to dodge them all until they are next to each other, and he throws a spear through all three, killing them. Back at the mine, with things going as bad as they are, there is talk of selling it to a Ridley, but he's not sure he wants a mine with a cursed diamond. Mr. Chisholm is able to convince him by selling it cheap, but just before they sign, the Black Marvel shows back up. Ridley pulls out a gun, but then Marvel takes him out. Taking Mr. Chisholm out to the mine to see the diamond, the two are confronted by Vulcan, the Earth Core god. However, he is no match for the Black Marvel. While this fight is happening, Ridley has woken up and followed them. Before Vulcan can be unmasked, he fingers Ridley as the one who put him up to the ruse, and is then shot to death by Ridley. The Black Marvel knocks Ridley out again. Vulcan turns out to be the witch doctor from earlier. It turns out that Ridley is the second biggest mine owner in the country, and hired the witch doctor to scare everyone away. When the Marvel started to investigate, he was kidnapped. Also, a diamond is not cursed or a diamond. It was a regular rock covered with a poisonous substance which made it gleam like a diamond and killed instantly when touched. Before Mr. Chisholm can properly thank him, the black marble is gone, for seeing justice carried out is all the reward he needs. Okay, let's talk about this story a bit. So first of all, let's just say this right off the bat. Is this story kind of racist? Yeah, it I'd say it's pretty racist. A lot of racist stuff going in here. It's not completely over the top. Um, And the reason why I'll say is this. Some of the uh, the pictures of the Africans here are a little off, but. So it's like that for a lot of people on this story, too. The artist style is a bit cartoony when it comes to the faces of people. So it doesn't seem to be reserved just for them. If it was reserved just for the Africans, I would say, yeah, really racist. But it's not. So it's just pretty racist, which is not great anyway. So going through the story, we get to page three where we have the witch doctor saying that he is bringing a warning from the god Volcan, spelled V-O-O-L hyphen K-A-N. Yeah, that's a made up thing. I can't find any reference to a god named Volcan, The closest is the Roman god Vulcan, which might be the inspiration for that instead. And speaking of the Witch Doctor, so this story kind of goes all over. I mean, first we have the diamond that kills people, then the Witch Doctor shows up, then gangsters show up, then Black Marvel just shows up out of nowhere, and then he's kidnapped. And apparently, as we find at the end, that was planned when he just showed up. We had no clue, but they planned that. It kind of feels like they were just making this up as they went along on each page. Like, what can we do now? I don't know. Uh, Let's have him kidnapped. On page 5, panel 4, is where we have our death appearance. I don't know why they chose to put it here as opposed to any of the places. Honestly, it would have made much more sense to have the shadow of death showing up for the first time that the diamond kills anybody. Or the last one. In the middle, kind of just doesn't... It's just like, throw it in there to throw it in there. But still, gives us a reason to talk about this story. All right, so after that, he gets kidnapped by the natives and brought to the Mari tribe. I was trying to look it up to see if that's real. There is no Maori tribe I could find a reference to in Africa. There are Maori people, but in Russia. And I didn't find anything about them being cannibals. Of course, the tribe's cannibals. I, it's 1940. I'm assuming everyone there probably just assumed every tribe in Africa was cannibals because general 1940s racism. <laughs> the fact that they have no, they don't know any better. Now, one thing I did like is when the Black Marvel escaped because he was brought there unconscious, he didn't automatically know which way to go. He just ran out hoping he can figure out where he has to go. That was a nice little touch. I will give them credit for that, the unnamed writer. I will give them that credit. And then we're back at the mine and they're sounded already. I mean, it feels like this story takes place over 12 hours and so much is, like, two weeks worth has happened. It's crazy. And then, of course, you have the final question of, how the hell did the Black Marvel get to Africa when it? When I was looking up the information about him? He was based in, like, the Northeast and California. So what he's doing in Africa, I don't know. Some of the artwork is kind of fun with the cartoonish. I mean, I'll give, give him that at least. There's a, a panel on page 8 with him running away, and it's kind of very, almost like a Bugs Bunny-esque Kind of, woohoo, I'm out. And that's amusing. I will say in this, uh, compared to some other Golden Age Marvel stories I've read, it's not hard to follow the story, at least. I'll give them credit for that, definitely. Storytelling is better than some other ones. I mean, there have been plenty where I couldn't figure out what order the panels were supposed to be in. This one, at least, is pretty apparent. So we're going to give them credit for that. But otherwise, not a great story. I mean... Some of the Golden Age Marvel stuff is fun. Reading some of them, you can tell why their characters really didn't do very well past the Golden Age, well, as opposed to Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman. They kept on going, kept being published. Even though they tried bringing back Cap Namor and the Human Torch in the 50s, there is no long continuity of them existing throughout that time. Overall, yeah, don't go looking for this. Don't worry about it if you haven't read this. Unless you're... Some kind of completist. You could ignore this. The fact that it's not reprinted anywhere is not surprising.
1: Hey, this is Dion Bai. I'm here with my friend Jay Blake, uh, both of the Podwitz fame. We've got a new um, podcast coming out for you. Do you remember back in the day when... Having your friends sleep over your house was the highlight of your week where you'd uh, go out with your parents and you rent every movie under the sun and you'd get some Jiffy Pop, uh, you'd max out that rental card and you'd uh, get some Joke Cola and stay up all night long watching more movies than you think you'd be able to binge watch. Uh, I do. Well, we've got a new podcast that you'll love. It can be found at saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com and basically what we're going to be doing here at Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers we're going to be profiling new and old that we used to watch when we were little. Yeah, movies from action movies to horror movies to maybe even new movies. Yeah, whatever we think could be a forgotten gem or something that we think could be a cult classic. We'll be seeing if the old movies still stand up, if they're as good as they used to be, if we remember them, and if they warrant a second viewing for people. So come on down and listen to us at Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. That can be found again at saturdaysleepovers.podwits.com. We'll be waiting for you. Later.
0: with me this week is a man who probably should learn to ask questions before he agrees to do things <laughs> from the podcast that goes snick jason venable how you doing jason you know how are you i'm fine i'm good i'm yeah, better good. than
2: some people are <laughs> hey i'll be your young al i uh, anytime <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice good one <laughs> As you might have noticed from the title of this episode, this is one of our supplemental episodes uh, where we are covering the appearances of... Exactly. (laughs) It is a flashback, yeah. Where we are covering the appearances of other characters who are important to Thanos and Adam. So right now, we are still covering the appearances of death in the Marvel Universe. And what were you about to say? I'm sorry.
2: Oh, no, no. I I said Affleck. Oh. (laughs) Supplemental. Sorry. Word word association. Um, That's true.
0: (laughs) Now, up until now, just so everyone knows, up until now, I have been doing these on my own. But we're going to start having guests on them because, well, quite frankly, it was taking me way too long to do this on my own. I mean, the last one we did, I did, which was for, I think, Mystic Comics number eight, took like a half, took like two weeks to do that 21 minute episode. That's way too long. <laughs> and considering that these are supposed to be my, you know, fill in issues. They should not take as long or longer than the regular issue to do. (laughs) Because
2: then what's What's, the point? Yeah. Once it's just more fun with friends, right?
0: Exactly. (laughs) What's the whole point? That's one of my reasons for doing this podcast. Plus, it gives (laughs) me more excuse to talk to more people. Right. So, like I said, we are still covering the appearances of Death in the Golden Age. And I know there is some contention about the first appearance of Death. I know some people say it's War is Hell number nine, except that issue came out after the Captain Marvel issues with Thana by starlin so i don't really count that as the first but i'm still looking at the appearances of death in the golden age as you'll and as we'll see when we get to this part, this one it still feels like death but we'll talk about that when we get to it so yes we're sure. we talking about the death appearance in young allies number five and who are the young allies you might ask well they are a kid team From Marvel's Golden Age, made up, of course, the two most famous kids that Marvel had, Bucky and Toro. In case anyone did not know this, of course, Bucky was Captain America's sidekick back then, and Toro was the Human Torch's sidekick. So just think, kid versions of the two of them. Right. (laughs)
2: Especially Toro. Exactly.
0: He literally is is just
2: a miniature Human Torch. (laughs) And in fact, when you see
0: him without the... flame powers he just looks like like a miniature version of the torch with just dark hair i mean he doesn't even look like a kid he looks just like they just shrunk a man right it's really weird (laughs) and then of course there are four other people in the young eyes helping who don't have powers there is knuckles whose real name is hold on let me get to that where i have that here percival Aloysius o'toole there is jeff there is washington
2: jones And there is Henry. So they all all have some colorful nicknames as well. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it goes
0: with the whole kid gang thing, like in the boy commandos or in the newsboy legion. You got the one that likes to use, uh, well, like in the newsboy legion, big words, Mm -hmm. who likes to use a lot of big words. And that is Jeff. And Knuckles is, of course, the one that, you know, talks with the Brooklyn accent and likes to fight a lot. (laughs) And this one then has two others that, in the order we're going to go into them, of descending (laughs) acceptability. (laughs) So Henry is called Tubby. Uh Uh-huh. Because he's heavy. Right. Yay, that's nice of them. (laughs) Although I will say this, at least now I have not read any other issues, but there did not seem to be... Too much of emphasis this issue, at least, of him going oh food,
2: right, right. And, and so, to be fair, because because it won't be as kind to the last character, but um, it wasn't a whole lot of fat shaming either. I was just kind of oh I'm chubby, I'm big. I think it was one time where he runs out of breath, but other than that, he's just kind of hanging around. Yeah.
0: And then there is well, his real name will, which was revealed later on. And it was Washington Carver Jones. And so just so everyone knows, by the way, for the rest of the episode, when we discuss them, I think we should just use their real name. So let's call them Henry and and uh, Washington. Sure. But he is known at the time as Whitewash Jones. As, and yeah, he's basically drawn <laughs> to look like, well, the whole minstrel caricature of African-Americans. So he has on what looks like a zoot suit with a giant hat. And his face is drawn a little bit. I mean, granted, the art here is very cartoony, especially, if, like, for instance, the owl. Right. Who is the villain. But, I mean, his head is drawn, like, a little differently shaped. And he, the the giant lips. Like, yes. I mean, really, I, I, it's,
2: it's like, no, 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 bad, 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 bad. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, it's pretty rough. And then throwing whitewash on top of that yeah it it, it negates any chance of oh it was just a different time we didn't know no no that that's pretty uh intentional
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty bad i mean this is what they did back then but we don't have to like it right and for the record we don't (laughs)
2: No, just to
0: be clear (laughs) yeah yeah no it's pretty bad I mean, I do reading of plenty of Golden Age stuff, but I don't know. I might have to skip Young Allies for the future (laughs) in the future because it's just like every page. I'm like, oh, God. Right. I mean, I like plenty of older stuff. I watch plenty of older movies, but maybe the reason I, you know, but at least the ones I'm watching, at least it's not so bad. Like, I think when they get so bad, it's like, okay, I can't I can't deal with this. I can't just go. This was the time it was. and I just have to take a breath and deal with it. Right. Here it's just like, no, just no. (laughs)
2: yeah
0: ah, so that's the characters anyway so hold on a second let's get a bit of synopsis for this and we're gonna get into this sounds good all right young allies comics number five horror in hollywood writer stan lee pencils don rico and al avison inker sid shores editor stan lee cover art alex Schomburg, cover dated september 1942 On sale date, August 28th, 1942. Cover price, 10 cents. You can find this reprinted in Marvel Masterworks Golden Age Young Allies, volume two, and digitally on Comixology. In Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler is furious at his previous attempts to demoralize American morale in his war efforts. So he calls his agent, the owl, to travel to America to see what can be done about this situation. The owl agrees to take the task and decides to direct his efforts to taking down America from within, starting with Hollywood. At that very moment, at the headquarters of the Sentinels of Liberty fan club, the Young Allies get a telegram from Hollywood. A director is interested in making a film about the adventures of the Young Allies, and has asked them to come to Hollywood to appear in the movie. With no money to make the trip, the Young Allies go to ask Captain America to borrow money. They run into Cap just as he is coming to pay the boys a visit, and he agrees to give them the money. Not wishing to make Bucky believe that he owes him, Toro flies off to borrow money from the Human Torch instead. As the Young Allies buy train tickets to get to Hollywood, the Owl has already arrived and has begun plans to eliminate the boys at Colossal Studios, the studio making the Young Allies film. At the same time, Captain America meets with the Human Torch to discuss their latest mission for the government, to travel to California and attempt to stop a Japanese invasion of the United States. They leave by plane, marveling at what a coincidence it is, that they will be working so close to their young charges and the Allies. In Hollywood, the producer, H.G., is stressing out over star actor, Bruce Brent, not being on set. Brent arrives, putting him slightly at ease. The young Allies show up shortly after, and Henry trips over himself and causes a bit of a kerfuffle before introductions are met all around. H.G. tells the boys that they appear on the set first thing in the morning and gives them an invitation to explore the set. They run into the owl and he tricks them into thinking he is an employee. However, they realize their error when he attempts to crush them by cutting loose the sandbag. Toro saves his friends from danger, but before they can act, the owl releases a trap door that causes them to fall into a pit with an alligator. While Toro uses his flames to keep the creature at bay, the young allies manage to climb out of the pit while the owl manages to escape. Elsewhere, Steve Rogers and the Human Torch meet with military officials and receive orders to scour the Californian coastline in search of the Japanese invaders. As they leave the office, a dagger hits the wall in front of them with a note attached. The note warns them that carrying out their mission will mean death. The next day, in Hollywood, the young allies are on set for their first scene in the movie based on them. However, when action is called, they suddenly duck when the camera begins firing bullets instead of taking film. Bucky rushes the cameraman and tackles him, but finds him dead with a knife in his back. He finds a note attached from the owl, mocking them. The boys decide to go back to their dressing room to think things over, when HG stops them and tells them that shooting is done for the day, and that tomorrow, they will be filming on the beach, where they will be doing a scene where they are stopping an invasion of America from Japanese soldiers. The delay saves the boys' lives, as when they are about to enter their dressing room, a bomb inside goes off, spotting the owl fleeing the scene. The young allies chase after him into a room filled with prop torture devices. As they search for the owl, Jeff gets distracted while examining an Iron Maiden and is caught by the owl and placed in the trap. The young allies come to his rescue and have to let the owl get away while they free Jeff from the Iron Maiden. Trying to catch up with the owl, they run into HG, who has instead come to find them so he can introduce them to the rest of the cast. After being introduced to the cast, the young allies come to believe that one of them is really the owl in disguise either the producer Mr. Jeffrey, Bruce Brent, actress Miss Dawn, Beetle the cameraman, and Carnes, the man slated to pay the villain in the picture. That night, the owl places a crate in the truck that is supposed to move the young allies to their location. The next day, as the film convoy is traveling to the beach, the young allies find that one of the crates in their truck has been loaded with poisonous lizards. While Knuckles kicks them out of the truck, they then find that their driver has bailed out. The Allies then manage to jump out of the truck before it can dive off a cliff. They are picked up by another truck and brought the rest of the way to the location. Elsewhere along the beach, Captain America and the Human Torch's search have yielded nothing. Suspecting that the trouble might include the young Allies, they intuitively decide to check out the movie set and rush off to its location. That night, as the young Allies sleep, the Owl sneaks into their room and places a poisonous snake on Bucky's chest, warning him that if he moves... The snake will strike him and then leaves. Jeff wakes up from the snake's hissing sound and comes to Bucky's rescue, tossing it aside and killing it. When the young allies examine it, they find that it is a unique clay that is on it that is found in a nearby cave. They investigate the cave and come face to face with the owl once more. He causes an avalanche, trapping them all inside and flees into the darkness. The young allies rush the Nazi spy and knock him off a cliff. But this is all according to his plan as the owl survives the fall and uses a secret tunnel to get the drop on the young allies. Splitting up into two groups, they begin exploring the caves for a way out. Henry and Knuckles overhear some men talking about an invasion of the United States, and then tackle what they think are the men, but turn out to be dummies. Meanwhile, Bucky, Toro, Washington, and Jeff are trapped by some Nazi spies and tossed down the same cliff that they had previously dropped the owl into. Down in the pit, they are told by the owl that there is only one way out, but he intends to burn them alive with a massive flame jet. As the other allies scramble to find the secret exit, Toro uses his flame powers to try and keep it away from his friends. When the owl attempts to shoot them, Toro launches some fireballs that send him fleeing. Unable to find the exit, Henry and Knuckles arrive at the foot of the cliff and use a rope to bring the others out. However, they have to leave Toro behind to continue fighting the flame jet, even though his powers are weak. They rush to the cave and shut off the control switch and save him in the nick of time. They manage to get him out of the cave and retire for the night. The next day, they prepare for the big fight scene in the film, and are surprised when one of the actors in the bunch tries to kill Bucky with a real knife. Chasing after the bogus actor, they lose him in the crowd, but spot him again rushing into the cave. Following after him, they find Bruce Brent, and presume he was the owl. They are once more in the face of the owl, who unleashes a lion upon them. When Toro attempts to use his flames, they are doused. However, the Owl becomes a target of rocks thrown by the boys, and he attempts to defend himself with his gun, shooting the lion dead instead. Chasing after the Owl, they lose him and run into Carnes and Miss Dawn. Carnes tells them that Brent has been murdered, pointing the boys back at square one and determining who the Owl really is. Before they can resume their search, HG calls everyone back to the set for the big action scene when the soldiers invade the beach. As the boys begin the scene, they are shocked to find that these actors are not pulling their punches and are using live rounds. They soon realize that these are real soldiers participating in a real invasion. They are soon joined by Captain America and the Human Torch, who lend a hand. Carnes reveals himself to be the Owl by attempting to blow the heroes up with a bomb. However, Cap fights it loose and throws it at the Japanese sub, blowing it up. While attempting to apprehend the Owl, he runs off a cliff to his seeming death. However, this hope is dashed when another knife is thrown with a note warning the young allies that the owl is still alive and may, as a master of disguise, attack them at any time in any identity. All right, and we're back. So the story is called Horror in Hollywood. And so Hitler sends his, decides he wants to ruin American morale, so he sends the owl. Now, my first question is this. Why the hell is he called the
2: owl? Other than the fact that he has giant glasses. Um, I mean, he looks more well, monkeyish to me. Because he has the owl hairdo that they'll, they'll swipe uh, for the Silver Age. Actually, you know, other, other than the obvious I'm a German Nazi and the other owl is not, there's actually quite a few similarities. Um, okay. He has sharp it's fingernails. Cool. He has the hairdo. He has a green suit. He has a cape. I mean those are all things that Leland Owlsley will have when he shows up. Um, oh. And so it's interesting. Obviously not the same character, but no. very much visually some stuff that was like, Oh, let's do a new owl and let's borrow this, this and this, but just you know, let's let's not do the whole Nazi Germany thing. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Huh, I didn't, okay, okay, I'll go with that, because I'm looking at that going, reading this going, why is he the owl? What does owl, well, like, does he have? But I guess you're yeah. right, there's some owl stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the, the the fingernails are like talons. Um, I don't really get the fangs, like, I don't, I mean, owls typically don't have fangs, but, yeah, I don't know, I think it's just a creepy, there's a creepy guy, or guys, depending on how you read the last part of the story. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I will say the best he looks is on the title page. Yeah. Yeah. He does. And he looks the most owlish there, I think, with the
0: hair. Definitely. He doesn't have he has the owl, almost wolverine-like hair. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, I mean, going in like, the first few pages, like, the second, the page three, his first appearance, he looks, like, the way, it, the way the panel looks, he looks like he's this short little thing. And then next thing you know, he's, like, this giant hulking.
2: <laughs> and I'm like, how big is this guy? Right. Yeah, even from panel to panel, right? Because when he comes in with the uh, the terrible Nazi salute, he does. He looks like he's maybe two feet tall, and then yeah. the very next panel, he's a solid eight foot. So uh, who knows what's going on? Yeah, it's like he, it's like what happened? Did you just change or something? I don't get it. <laughs> and
0: the green thing goes from a
2: clo- goes from a coat to a cloak. Oh yeah, it is straight up like a sports coat in the first panel, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, because you can see it's a sleeve. It's not like <laughs> it's not like a cape hanging over his arm. That's a sleeve, and no, no, it's a whole. set it's like no, it's a cape. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally like two two totally different people, like, <laughs> and then he does the whole like vampire thing with this cloak in the panel after that, where Hitler's giving given the side eye. Um, go quick, Von Snell. But anyway, so. We'll move on. Like I said, we're gonna go through this quickly because
0: we don't need to go into depth on this whole thing. So, is there as we go through though, like as we're skimming through panels, is there anything in, in that like stuck out to you that you just wanted to mention?
2: We already talked about how terrible it was that they named him White Wash. Yeah. Um, a couple of things. Other th- I, these are not my preferred Captain America wings. I don't like the like stringy oh yeah really looks, set off wings i don't i don't like those um it looks like an e with a long uh-huh. with like a long thing on the bottom <laughs> right captain america yeah. yeah um <laughs> and then uh they feed fire to a crocodile if, if i get too far ahead just slow me down um Let's see if there's anything i need to see um
0: blah 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 they're there oh yeah here we go the crocodile
2: yeah, and that is a weird looking crocodile. Oh, it's very strange, and the fact that they feed it or beat it by throwing a fireball in its mouth is is nuts. But this really is like it's almost like a little Rascals episode where they they get in like pitfall after pitfall after pitfall. There's crocodiles, wizards, snakes, and lions, and <laughs> Like, oh i know oh by the way freaking nuts the crocodile i almost forgot i did want to say something about the crocodile is it just
0: me or does it look like a person in a crocodile suit like for totally a, like from like a, disney world yeah yeah like a bad like like a really like the lowest budget episode of doctor who from like the 70s <laughs> that they or 80s you could think of it's like just get in the suit just get in the right.
2: suit protect your crocodile make crocodile or- sounds a croc guy from the original Star Trek series. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you're drawing
0: this. Why does it look like a person
2: in a, co- a bad well, costume? Well, because even like after they put the fireball in his mouth, he even stands up on his hind legs. And it's yeah. like, Rah! which doesn't just mean as a crocodile have a German accent. He's like, yeah, I think so. rock. Like, great. The German crocodile. How the hell that happened? Right. But yeah, it's just, Trap after trap after trap. Then and we start getting uh, notes with knives, yeah, like, thrown. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's like, what? What is wrong with you? You're warning them that this is where this is where
0: I am. Come get me,
2: right? It's like, oh, what's and wrong? He, and with he signs you? them,
0: "Death to America." <laughs> yeah. Oh, but speaking of that, that page with the uh, the one where he throws the warning to, to Cap and the torch in their... And Caps walking around in his army uniform with the pipe.
2: Oh, uh, yes. Classic golden age. Steve Rogers with his corn cob pipe. Or Bruce Wayne with the pipe. Yeah. Like, oh, my God. Everyone had to have a pipe. Well, it's a sign of the times, right? It's just like in the early 90s when Gambit and Wolverine smoke cigarettes in every issue they're in. Right. True. It's just, you know, setting them, setting them apart. So some of the splash pages are nice. There's one with the owl like wringing his hands and some bats flying out of the shadow that looks pretty cool.
0: Wait, where's this one? Which page?
2: Uh, Digital copy is page 31.
0: Okay, hold on. Let me get back to
2: that. So it's like after they chase everyone through the caves and, and Knuckles has a good pitch where he throws a rock at the owl's head. And they're like, hey, nice pitch, Knuckles. Oh, yeah. No, that's one of the two pages I
0: really liked Uh uh-huh let's use splash pages uh because it is a pretty cool look plus here's the nice thing you actually get washington fighting and you don't
2: see his face so it doesn't ruin it (laughs) right he's punching a guy out and yeah and his back's turned so there's no stereotype and it's just the three it's just him
0: and the two main heroes bucky and toro yeah, you know, The others don't get to be on the page. He does. And at least we don't see the caricature face. So, like, we
2: can right. imagine he looks normal. So, these are, these are, Reed Richards has not invented unstable molecules yet. So, whenever Toro flames off, he's just in boots and underwear. Uh, does his flame power keep him just preternaturally warm? Because, like, uh, in the bottom of this dark, dank cave, I would think he'd be freezing his ass off, but. Yeah. I would think so too. But then
0: again, that flame thing keeps to go on and off as much as they need to.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean at one it run, point it runs out when the plot wants it to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean at one point <laughs> in the beginning it ran out right away. It's like you didn't even use it yet. How do you run out? <laughs> I thought about it really hard. me out. I do
0: like that part when they're in the cave and he's actually physically fighting the fire. I mean that's yeah. kind of cool. Like he's
2: actually grabbing flames and pushing them back. That's that's just amusing but and kind of fun. And also, that's probably some of the best uh, flame kid art in the, in yeah. the issue as well. Uh, that one, like right, right under the panel of the three faces, he yep. looks he looks really good. Like it was yeah. really nice. So, who's this Don Rico guy that did the art in this? Do you know?
0: Uh, much not about much about him?
2: him. No. Plus, I've seen
0: some stuff where it's either Don Rico or Al 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 Avison. So, well, are they interchangeable? and then the same guy? Uh, I don't know if they're the same person because I see both, at least on Com- Grand Comic Database, they're both listed as pencillers. Oh, both, for this issue. Oh, yeah. okay. So and Al Albison is like the is a question mark, so it may or may not be him. Okay, interesting. But let's see, horror and Hollywood, hold on, we're on Mike's Amazing Word. Yeah, because according to Mike's Amazing World, they didn't credit just Al Avison Huh. Okay. As the artist. And he's done a lot of uh, stuff for Marvel back then. Like, we're talking stories, and he did the Tuck Cave Boy story in Captain America Comics number two, the Wizard story from USA Comics one. Like, he has a whole bunch of things from that time period, from the early, from like 42, 43, 44, to like 49. Okay. That's what they've listed for him, all Marvel stuff, or Atlas at that point. Very interesting. And let's see, coming up soon is the other one I like, which is the other big splash page.
2: Is that the the one, the, the main point of the episode? yes okay I'm before we guessed. get to that there is okay. one one really terrible part where bucky they're fighting the uh, japanese soldiers and he talks about how they all look alike to him so you know oh get on, yeah good on that oh right, uh, yeah
0: the japanese thing in there too we, like, right. okay let's
2: see who else can we be racist towards here <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so um the the death page is pretty awesome it does yes. let you know something that makes sense that that everybody is eventually death and bottom. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> because poor Al is uh, <laughs> uh, that's quite a panel, but um, <laughs> but yeah. it does look pretty pretty great though, and, and he's like, some- Blood, "Ha ha ha!" You've done your work well, Al. <laughs> yeah. And this is something
0: I've been saying since we were doing these things: is that. Maybe it's not officially the character of death, but it basically is because the Marvel death is almost like a villain. You know, Marvel's death is very much into not just it's not just like the death from D.C. besides the fact that she's really cool. Right. You know, death is also just like, look, I'm here to do a job. You die. You know, you have a life. You die. I take care of you. I take you after you're dead. That's all. Marvel's death is like not enough people have died. You need to go give me more people dead. I mean, that's the whole thing that starts Infinity Gauntlet. Right. Death brings back Thanos because she's like, hey, you know, there's too many people alive now. Mm -hmm. We need to do something about it. So, like, this is a death that actively wants people dead. This is not just a death that's like, I'm part of the balance. This death is like, can I get me more?
2: I want more. There's a literal bloodthirst to the character that is... um,
0: it kind of fits with these appearances of death early on. It's like it's the same type of character still, just expanded on. Yeah. So I kind of find that entertaining. Like whether that was intentional or not, it works. Yeah. You know, it, no, it, it, it works. It works, it it works it like fall. there's really nothing inconsistent. You could actually say, yes, all these deaths is the same death. Yeah, Can so, be. Could be. I do like that. But of course, the, the, the end, you know, we get to the end, they beat the Japanese soldiers, and the owl falls off a cliff. Which we can barely see, because after uh-huh. all of these ages of all these other things, we get the villain dying. And we, it's basically like from like a a long shot of like film, like 40 feet, 50 feet away. <laughs> right. Maybe further away, maybe like a mile away. Like, all you see is a little silhouette falling.
2: Right. But then you get a note that says, I'm still the owl. <laughs>
0: or maybe I'm not.
2: Maybe I'm the <laughs> other owl. It's like besides the fact that
0: like how many owls are there and i don't i don't think they ever come back but it's like wait so you your job was just to hang out and wait and if they die to run away
2: <laughs> right. and just be like sure.
0: i'll take care of things don't worry but yeah yeah <laughs>
2: like who's ne- who's next in line who's next in line for the owl do you have your knife and your note ready you gotta you gotta be ready to go now what's up with that panel so not only are they terrible captain america wings they're in a different spot on his head every time. And there's yeah. one where it's straight up on the top of his head.
0: Yeah, I looking at that last page of the story, yeah, it's on the top of his head, and then it's, like, lower
2: next panel. <laughs> right. Man, 1942 had some lazy art. <laughs> now, to be fair, they also were cranking these things out, probably. Oh, I
0: know, I know oh is this shield the wrong colors it's blue like it's like the circle is going from outside in it's blue white red white and then the blue in the middle
2: oh, i don't supposed remember to look like that
0: that's... i mean although it is that way the whole time it looks like
2: yeah no but now modern days there was red on the outside isn't it yeah in the last okay because the blue on the outside is just like i can just tell like that's weird yeah you can tell why they make that change, if, if that's an actual change or this is an error. I'm not sure. But the outside blue ring against his chest looks strange. Yeah. So you need the contrast of the red on the outside to go up against the rest of his suit. So it makes sense why they would have changed it. I'm trying to, now you got me curious. I'm going to look back. I also hate oh. the Golden Age Captain America where he only has the stripes on the front. I really yeah. don't like
0: that. By the way, I'm looking at some images of Captain America, like comic images, and it's the the circles going from outside and in are red, white, red with the
2: blue center. Oh, okay. So they just changed up. So it's more from, like the flag where yeah. the middle is like the, the patch and then the red and whiter than just the stripes. Yeah. So okay. still pretty much the same design. It's just the outer. It's just two rings of red instead of one ring of red
0: and one blue. Okay. That was the Young Allies. Uh, Like we said, uh, there's some... It's pretty cringy. There's a lot of cringe. Yeah, and it's also a story that's really weird and doesn't always make sense. I'm sorry, it doesn't
2: always make sense? Are there parts of it that do make sense? Uh,
0: Somewhere. Something did. I might have missed it, but something did. Now... Because we have this whole thing, I just wanted to say real quick afterwards. I read just now, it's on Marvel Unlimited, the Young Allies 80th Anniversary Special, which came out in 2009. And in it, this kid, so that was at the time when Bucky was Captain America. Or, you know, Winter Soldier was Captain America. It starts with him at Arlington National Cemetery looking up a couple people, you know, that he knew back then. And he finds there's a there's like a small Young Allies Memorial, but only two of them are listed. And he finds the other two, which is Knuckles and Washington. Washington is visiting Knuckles in a hospital, and he tells them it's Bucky, and they talk. And we find out, for instance—and this is something that Marvel—I'm not sure if that was the first time Marvel established it, but it has been established in other places that a lot of the heroes in Marvel's Golden Age had, in-universe, had comics made about them as, like, propaganda. Mm -hmm. And— but because there were comics made about them, the the things are not always accurate or even true. So this is how they get around to saying like, because they talk about the facts that like, they draw us like we were twelve or ten, but like they were all like somewhere between the ages of like sixteen and 12, sixteen and eighteen. Okay. And also like uh, Henry, you know, aka Tubby. Like, they say, you know, he was never as, he was not as heavy as he was shown then. Like, he might have been a bit husky, but he was not as fat as they draw Tubby. And obviously, you know, we find out his real name is Washington Carver Jones. His friends call him Wash, short for Washington. Obviously, he wasn't thrilled with the way he was portrayed either in it. So, and they actually give him a good story, they actually have a good story with the actual characters in there. And it's a really nice thing with Bucky, like, reconnecting with friends who are like, two of them have passed away already, and the other two are, of course, in their, like '80s at that point. But it's a yeah, really it was, nice story. Uh, that's right looking.
2: now. Uh, Paulo Rivera does the art, so that's yeah. that's a nice plus as well. Yeah. So, like, we get some nice, you know. It, so it kind of at least
0: it helps a bit. At least they gave right. something, you know. They like they gave him some dignity, some, some
2: redemption. It, yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, cool.
0: and, and it was a nice story too. I like that one. That was a good story. That that one's a good story. Don't look for this one. <laughs> I, you know now I know why Young Allies comics are not listed on Marvel Unlimited, <laughs> and I don't. I wonder if
2: they ever will be. Yeah, I don't but. know. That's uh, there's some of the problematic Golden Age stuff is on there. Some of the old Captain America stuff is not not a whole lot nicer than this, but it's it's on there anyway.
0: Well, maybe so. it's because it's not
2: every issue, right? And since he's
0: a character, main character of the series, he's going to be in every issue, right? And that might be a problem. But the Young Allies <laughs> anniversary special is so anyone wants to read anything about them, go read that because it's a much better story.
2: Awesome. Oh, I'll put it on my read list. Yeah, it was a fun, it was a fun read.
0: Well, anything else you're thinking of about this?
2: Or anything uh, else that know, that's stuck at you? You're like, hey. The <laughs> only you know thing I thought was kind of cool was in the there's a backup propaganda story about war stamps. Oh there's yeah. Kinda, there's kind of a cool panel of, of Hitler with like three like Nazi demon dogs, which feels like they would be in like a a Doom movie or something like that. But <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I'm just
0: realizing maybe this is why they had his name because Al Alsen is listed as the artist for this backup story. Yes, so he maybe is. he was only the artist for this story, not the other one. It
2: looks different.
0: It doesn't look yeah. the same. No, so maybe it is him because his cap is
2: very weird. It's like <laughs> his head is like a cylinder in this yeah. panel. Uh-huh. It's like the, the predecessor of the leader. Yeah. You know? It's really bizarre. That A's uh, nice and big. He's got a big old A on his head. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, I like the little
2: the little advertisement. Marvel Comics, the royal family of famous names. Yeah, I forgot how much Golden Age the Vision predecessor it looks like Martian Manhunter. I forgot about that. Yeah, and then we the Human Torch, the Submariner, the Patriot, the Angel, Jimmy
0: Jupiter, and Terry Vance. I'm like, who? <laughs> what is Jimmy Jupiter so surprised about? <laughs> I wanted to look at that kid reading the comic. You know, the kid that have like, re- that's supposed uh-huh. to like reading them. That a looks kind of evil. Yes, he does. And he reminds me. I mean, I haven't read much of this, but have you read anything about of Miracle Man? Not much, no, not much. He looks like, from what I remember seeing of it, the the, the evil, like the kid Miracle Man, the one that becomes like evil in that oh. story.
2: Okay, interesting. He kind of looks like him. Yeah, he looks like a he looks like the uh, kid from a. Uh... Oh crap. um... Damien. What movie? Omen from the Omen. Oh yeah. Or uh little Reggie. Like, oh, evil, yeah. like Reggie From Archie. Yeah. He looks like you know twelve year old Reggie.
0: Yeah. Like funny. no matter what he's doing, he's still gonna be evil.
2: Oh, the golden age. Oh yeah. And I didn't even read Norman the Dorman, so if you have anything to say about that. I didn't get a chance to read that. I'll be so, on your own. And that's just weird. Like
0: it almost looks like some kind of
2: like Eagle uh, Bailey, something, yeah,
0: yeah, but the art almost looks like some kind of like a uh, like bad computer animation, bad flash animation, or something. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's really weird. But anyway, so that's Young Allies number five. We read it, so you don't have to. That's right. We took we took it for you. And anyone who wants Jason to be on their podcast in the future, I'm sorry, but he's now going to start a screaming questionnaire. <laughs> right.
2: A, a rigorous approval process for sure
0: like i don't know if i want to be associated with this uh let's see what's what are you doing let me read it first and i'll get back to you
2: that's funny no right. it's always always a pleasure al well thank you i appreciate it somebody had to do this with me i was not doing this on my own <laughs> misery does love company
0: so jason before we go where would you like to tell people to find you
2: yeah, so um, I do have a show, the the Wolverine podcast that goes snicked. Twitter is at snickcast, so all my podcast stuff is there. And also, if you're interested, you can follow along my various Marvel reading projects. Um, I have one that I do concurrent with my flashbacks, and then I also have one that uh, for a 70s Marvel stuff where I'm doing everything I can find. So if you, that interests you, you can check that out. Yep, and links will be in the show notes.
0: The nice thing about the Wolverine is that because you do those flashback ones, so you could be reading just new Wolverine stuff, or you could just be reading your old, the old stuff. Yeah, and, we, and we it got doesn't it matter what you're in for. <laughs> exactly. Because I'm so far backed up with new stuff, that so it's like, okay, at least I have all the flashback ones. I know these things. Right. Time to check more feedback. That's right, it's feedback time. And this time we are talking about feedback from episode 138, Never Offered a Help, in which my brother Joe and I covered Infinity Wars. Actually, it was the last episode we covered Infinity Wars. And on that one, we did Infinity Wars number 6, Infinity Wars Fallen Guardian number 1, and Infinity Wars Infinity number 1. And this will be one of the last times I have to keep saying Infinity Wars five times in a row. So on Facebook, the post about that episode was liked and shared by Jesse Starcher, Pat Sampson, Ruth Sutherland, and Gene Hendricks. On Twitter, we got lights and retweets from Viet Huin, Toys and Sometimes Jokes, Warlord Worlds, David Finn, Ghost Spider Groupies, Last Sons of Krypton, Into the Night, Ray, Connor McKenna, Fantasy Comic League, Capes and Lunatics, at Silver Farron, Chris Leiden, Jeffrey Brown, parentheses they slash them, Long Box of Darkness, Into the Weird, Serpent Comics, Warlord.com, Shadowpunk, Michael Weinberg, Dear Watchers of Marvel What If Podcast, Mike, Fanholes Podcast, Ad Armando Ferrig, and Jason Snick Venable. Now, if you want to have your name mentioned, that's easy. Just like and share our posts on fo- social media. Go to Twitter at Adam Thanos Pod. We're on there. Follow us. Talk with us. We like comics. You like comics? Hey. Facebook. Just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box, and it'll pop up. You can go to our Tumblr page, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com, or send us an email, because I haven't got one in a while, resurrectionpodcast at yahoo.com. If you're interested in hearing more from me, by the way, you can find me pretty much each week on the LEGION PODcast, in which we are talking about the late 80s, early 90s DC sci-fi series, Legion. And you can find that on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed. Links for all the social media, as well as Legion of Substitute podcasters, can be found in the show notes. Finally, this show is part of The Collective. The Collective is a podcast network, basically made of podcasters who are networking in the most traditional sense, just to help each other out, bounce ideas off each other, share episodes, etc. In fact, we're going to play a promo for one of The Collective podcasts right now.
1: I am Connor, from the House of Elf. And I am Ray from the House of Zod. We are two of the many, many survivors of Krypton's destruction, and we have made our home in Australia, and dare I say have become Australians, for better or worse. But we have also decided to read Superman comics, I read Superman books, watch Superman shows, cartoons, movies, basically everything Superman, and from an Australian perspective as well. Whether you're a seasoned fan, like me, or whether you are coming in fresh, wide-eyed, and wanting to learn more like me, then this podcast is for you. Join us for our bi-weekly adventures available on all good podcast catches. So just search for Last Sons of Krypton, a Superman podcast. We'll be coming to you from Australia, or some cosmic dimension, wherever we are. We? Up, 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 and, and away. away. That's
0: it for our Death in the Golden Age trade paperback volume two episode. Next time will be the last of these trade episodes, Death in the Atomic Age, with guest Ryan Daly. See you then. Bye. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. After, after the issue we're gonna be covering today the only appearance he only had the one bluff. after the issue we're covering today he only had the one he only had one but most of his, but most of, ah but most of his it was just the people who were about to die who were the most It was just the people who were about to die who heard the Morse Morse code